This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Shogun Iamitsu, War and Romance in 17th Century Togugawa, Japan. And the author is Michael R. Zamber, and Michael joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Michael. Hello. Well, great to have you here. Uh, a very in-depth well, it's it takes us right into the samurai culture of Japan. What would you say? Well, you say the 17th century, so back into the 1600s of the samurai culture. And you write this: this fascinating historical novel offers a unique window into life and love in feudal Japan. There is no more interesting figure in history than that of the legendary samurai. And Shogun Iemitsu reveals samurai life in all of its glorious complexity. I think most of us are fascinated with the samurai because I guess it's just so mysterious to Westerners. And yet, this was a very, very real uh, historical figure. And that's what your novel it's based on historical fact, but of course, it's fiction. So you are revealing the time through fiction, but based on historical fact. Why write this? My goodness, what a complex story, Michael. Why write it? Well, one might ask, you know, why didn't Herman Melville write Moby Dick? Because uh, through the, the complexity lies the, the story, the story of this most interesting period and people whose lives were defined by concepts which are hard to grasp, like honor and loyalty. These people were honorable and loyal to a fault. They would die for their honor, and their loyalty to their lords was such that they would gladly die for him as well. And the concept is just so close to Christianity and the concept that Jesus propounded, which was that one had to lose one's life in order to gain it. And this is the essence of samurai thinking. So it's not as far from Western culture as one might think. Well, that usually is evident when we dig into the, the bottom line living and thinking of, of cultures that, uh, for the most part, people are striving for the best, for excellence, and here the samurai uh, is tied to a point in history where you have a conflict between Christianity and Buddhism. Absolutely, but it was a conflict that was more political than spiritual, because the, the two, if they're practiced in their essence, are almost consonant. I mean, they both emphasize humility, service, dignity, and honor. But because of political ends, they were made, the one was suppressed, and the other was raised up to be the relig official religion of Japan. Although, just before the early 17th century, Christianity was the predominant religion in Japan. And it was government-supported, but that changed because they were concerned that the religion was so popular that the foreign influences, the Jesuits and the Spanish and the uh, Portuguese, would take over the country, as they had done in South America. And the Japanese were not unaware of this. Tokugawa shogunal authorities decided that... Uh, Christianity would eventually overthrow their government. 
So your book appeals, as you say, to the purists and at the same time can be enjoyed by the layman. I believe that's absolutely the case. And I think that it's an extremely good read for the layman. There's a extensive glossary at the back of the book, and the layman will learn so much about Japanese culture, weapons, armor, samurai, that uh, I think it would well repay the layman. I think they would enjoy it just as layman enjoyed James Clavell's Shogun, only I believe Shogun Iemitsu goes far further in accurately portraying Japanese culture during the Tokugawa era. We have two young samurais, or the main characters, the the heroes, or are they in conflict? They are best friends. I mean, this is basically, at one level, a buddy novel. Hideo is the illegitimate grandson of one of the great Japanese rulers, Oda Nobunaga, and his friend Kobayashi is basically... Uh, second-generation samurai, samurai being minor nobility, and they are just the best of friends. And there's little conflict between them on the surface. There's some internal conflict because Kobayashi is a Buddhist and Hideo is a kakure or hidden Christian. So Hideo is always very careful to preserve his outward Buddhism while maintaining his inward Christianity, and this is a conflict within him. But as far as conflict between he and Kobayashi, they're no more than the normal give and take between two best friends. Now, are they related to the Shogun? The Tokugawa Shogun is actually concerned. Shogun Iemitsu is concerned that, that Hideo will become a figurehead for people seeking to overthrow the shogunate because his grandfather, Nobunaga Oda, was not a Tokugawa. So there's concern, but Hideo, being illegitimate, makes very little of his ancestry. And then, of course, there is also conflict with Hideo and the daughter of the Lord of the Province. Lord Arima's daughter, Mariko, and Hideo were very much in love, and then her father, who wanted to marry her off to one of the shogun's sons, told her to either break off the relationship or marry Hideo and be disinherited. So Mariko chose the former and broke off the relationship. But Hideo is still very much in love with her, although he's trying to forget her. So is the uh, lord of the province, is, is he the antagonist? The Lord of the Province is one of the antagonists, but he's primarily an antagonist to the Shogun. He's not an antagonist to Hideo and Kobayashi, who are soldiers in his service and live in the barracks. So who is the other antagonist? The other antagonist is Shogun Iemitsu himself, who has spies reporting to him on a monthly basis about Hideo, because any descendant of Nobunaga is a potential threat to the shogunate. In this particular province, Kyushu province was the scene of the most serious threat to the Tokugawa shogunate, the Shimabara Rebellion, which was a rebellion led by a Christian boy, Amakusa Shiro, who thought that Christianity was the way, and refused to accept the Tokugawa suppression of the religion. So there's a real struggle for loyalty. There is a tremendous struggle for loyalty. I mean, there's loyalty to Arima, there's loyalty to family, there's loyalty to the shogunate, and there's loyalty to one's God. And all of these are in conflict in this novel. How does Hideo keep his Christianity a secret? He locks it within his heart. He cannot worship openly. If he did, he would be executed immediately. So there are there suspicions? There are not overt suspicion, because overtly he's a very, very good Buddhist. He was sent to a Buddhist abbey for his educa- early education, 
and reports were sent to the shogunate that uh, showed that he was not a Christian, that he was a Buddhist. But when he goes into the Buddhist temple and looks at the statue of the Buddha, he does not think of worshipping the Buddha, he thinks of worshipping the Christ. So it all goes on in his heart and his mind, and he must be very careful not to use Christian terms. And there are times in the novel when he slips up and he's wondering to himself, did I really say something that incriminates me? Does his best friend know? Kobayashi does not know. And if he did know, he would probably have some problems with it. Not because he would not tolerate and love Hideo, but because of the mortal danger that it would place both of them in. I mean, even the suspicion of being a Christian would be enough to, for somebody to be denounced and executed. Every year, the Japanese had to perform the Fumie ceremony, which meant a renunciation of Christianity, where publicly one had to stamp on the image of the Virgin Mary or an image of Christ and say, I am not a Christian. How would you describe your novel? Uh, there's certainly action scenes in it. Uh, is it an action novel? Is it more of a character uh, developed develop novel where we are there's a lot of intrigue between the characters just in dialogue and thought uh, or is it a combination i would say it's a combination of there there are duels there's a festival and a contest between swords and helmets there's matchlock firing there, there there's a great deal of action but it's not the action does not drive the novel. The novel is character-driven, but there's enough action to appeal to those who want action, and there's enough character to appeal to those who want their characters well-rounded. None of my characters are cardboard characters that just have a little bit behind them. These are fully developed, well-rounded characters that one can easily imagine meeting and speaking with. Even with all the focus, uh, you know, as you put it, an incredible reliance on honor, duty, and loyalty placed even above life. Obviously, they're, I guess these characters also reflect the flaws in human nature because there's so much conflict. There, there isn't uh, loyalty amongst all of them or, or uh, honor amongst all of them. Well, that's true. But Hideo and Kobayashi are loyal to each other. Hideo remains loyal to Mariko, even though she's been forced to break off the relationship. But uh, there's certainly no loyalty on the part of Lord Arima to the shogunate, and that drives much of the action in the novel. He is not loyal. He is loyal to himself. He believes himself to be superior to Iemitsu. He has nothing but contempt for the shogun. And he even demonstrates contempt for the shogun when the shogun's personal representative, Lord Ishido, the shogunate executioner, or Kaishakunin, comes to Aramis province for the festival. All of the action in this book takes place within 24 hours. It's one day in the life. Oh, all right. I didn't realize that. That's, uh, that's, that's very intense then. It, it was done that way, or designed that way, to be easily understood as all the action occurs in one day. There's backstory, not only to the char characters Hideo and Kobayashi, Lord Arima, but there's backstory back to the Shimabara Rebellion. But all of the action in the novel takes place within a 24-hour period, from morning till morning. One morning in August, on the hottest day of the year, to the next morning. And during that time, everyone's life changes, from Iemitsu's to Hideo's to Kobayashi's to Arima's. Some people, their lives are enriched. Other people, their lives are diminished. It's a universe within a universe. I'm sure it was a great challenge to get all the historical detail accurate that was a great challenge and uh, 
I think I was up to the task. If I failed, I would be delighted to hear from readers who are very good at discovering any sorts of anachronisms or inaccuracies. But I did do my best. Michael, tell us how to get your book. The book is available on Amazon.com, and it's available on BarnesandNoble.com, and I believe it's available directly through iUniverse. Well, we appreciate you sharing all the insights and the inside information on your book. Thanks so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio, Michael. Well, thank you, iUniverse, for the opportunities that you've offered me. That was Michael R. Zomber. He is the author of his book, Shogun Iemitsu, War and Romance in 17th Century Togugawa, Japan. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central, on Toginet with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus, NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Mom with Jill Hickey, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com your story are you living it well you could be it's what's your story with hillary bilbrey friday mornings at 10 eastern 9 a.m central on toginet.com her passion is helping others discover create and live their personal brands yep you heard me you have a brand no different than coke pepsi or nike you are a walking talking living breathing brand you're not a logo you're not a tagline the choices you make become the path you take this is your brand now, live your story. Your brand is not just what you say it is. It's also what others say it is. So what are you communicating? And how can you create an authentic brand? We'll take on these challenges with What's Your Story? Every week, Hillary will feature teens, moms, and organizations that are learning and living their story. Now, her passion is to help others discover, create, and live their personal brands. To find out more, go to inspiredbyfamily.com. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbury. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Changing the World One Invention at a Time. Acting on your ideas using the creatively inventing framework. And the author is Richard Edward Rowe. And Richard joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Richard. Hi, Steve. How are you? Good to have you with us. Now, we're going to talk about a very complicated process, but at the same time, there are simple rules to follow in the patent process, and you're going to share those with us. I want to first, though, give us a, a kind of an overview, have everyone kind of understand in general what we're going to be talking about. You say this, this book appeals to anyone with an idea that thought the idea could be a great product and appealing to businesses wanting to better shape their ability to generate new products from ideas. The book breaks down a very complicated subject into easy-to-follow steps and informs inventors on what to expect from the patent process. Well, again, that re reiterates this complicated subject, but at the same time, with a person like you that has had a professional career and done a uh, really completed a lot of patents, uh, you have that kind of ability to explain it and break it down. So tell us about your professional background, Richard. Sure, Steve. I uh, started my career going into the United States Air Force when I was uh, 18 years old, and I went to school at night for numerous years after that. Um, 
But I, uh, in the Air Force, uh, it was interesting because I worked on avionics systems um, for F-4Es, those are fighter jets. And I actually came up with my first invention before I was 20 and uh, patented it right after I was 20 uh, in the Air Force. And, and I learned a great deal about the patent process then. I went on to uh, work at a number of different uh, firms, Watkins, Johnson, Lockheed, and, uh, and, and International Gaming Technology. And through that career, I just spent a lot of time learning about technology, understanding where technology was going, and coming up with new ideas. And as I was coming up with new ideas, I kept asking myself, well, what do I do with these ideas? Well, certainly, you know, they're the company's ideas, so I can help the company. And so I would, I would do that. And, and we started talking about patents and how patents could actually help the company that I was working for. Um, so we went through the, the process, and I asked lots and lots of questions. That's one of the things that I've done throughout my, my 30 years of a career is when I don't understand something, I ask a question, but I continue to ask questions until I finally do understand what it is um, the solution is. And so I, I found a couple of things along the way, and one was really being able to ask the right question, and, and that's kind of how I've learned you know, really, what's important and what's not important in the process. I also work as an expert witness, so I, I see the litigation side. Uh, there's a couple of cases I'm, I'm an expert witness on right now. And, and things come up, and you have to understand not only what the technology is and how it works, um, but what the, what the patent says, what the patent protects, and then try to decipher all of that and make sense out of it and explain it to a jury that would understand what the technology does in very simple terms. So that experience kind of led me down the path of writing this book. And you believe that through this process that you have detailed in your book that the average person without technical background can, can really understand? Yeah, and that's, that was the goal of the book, because there's a lot of great books out there uh, that talk about patents and inventions. Um, in fact, there's numerous websites as well. But one of the things that I, I saw there was a real need for was, uh, you know, step, easy step-by-step -step, um, explanation of how to go through the process. But more than that, examples that people could understand. You know, that's the way I learn. I mean, I ask questions, but I also need examples to really fully understand what it is um, that I'm looking at. And so what I've done in the book is I've actually used a number of examples <laughs> of consumer products that, that I've done outside of the companies that I worked for um, related to just fun projects and fun, uh, fun products. For example, one is a uh, remote-controlled dog toy. You know, I thought it would be fun to be able to uh, entertain my dog by sitting on the couch and so you could actually use a remote control uh, device and, and put a stuffed animal on it and uh, cruise around the house and let the dog chase it. Um, and so that might not sound like a novel idea. Novel means something that's never been done. But what I tried to do with that is show how it could be a novel idea. And, in fact, a little side effect to this story is that uh, the uh, three-year-old child in the house actually liked it more than the dog. And so... Uh, I found that there were other things that came up out of that process. And uh, my uh, little niece, she would chase this thing with the stuffed animal on it, and then the dog would chase her. So everybody got exercise, except for me, of course, because I was on the couch. Well, that's right in your uh, Chapter 1. You talk about asking the right question and use that as an example. Your uh, Chapter 2, called Creative Prototypes and Experimentation, you talk about creatively developing ideas. Now, does, is that something the average person can learn to do? Well, I think the average person actually does that. And maybe it doesn't sound as formal and it doesn't sound as, uh, you know, as, as cool as that. But it's, you know, you walk down the street, you see something that just doesn't make sense to you. You have an idea about how that could be different. Or, or maybe you see something in your workplace or you see something somewhere else. Well, now you've got an idea, and so you start to think about that idea, and the next question is, well, how would I solve that idea? And so I think even though, you know, there is a process I try to take people through in this book, um, 
you know, what people do is they'll end up starting to think about, oh, okay, I could do this, this, and this to solve that problem. And then the next thing they do is like, well, I'm not quite sure how to actually implement that or how to act on that solution. And so they just put the idea down and forget about it. And the funny thing is, years later, oftentimes I've heard people say, that was my idea. I should have been (laughs) doing something about that. I thought of that first. And so my whole theme for the book is, well, if you thought, thought of it first, act on it. Why are you waiting? Now, in that chapter, the example is the zucchini trellis. Now, that sounds interesting, the zucchini trellis. What was that about? Well, I had a lot of fun with that, and my my wife actually was quite surprised. <laughs> and I talk about that in the book. But, uh, you know, I wanted to go through an example that would be fairly straightforward to understand. And, and so I, I don't really know much about growing vegetables. I just know the basics. And so what I tried to do, um, just to summarize it, is I tried to, to come up with this problem, and, and the problem was how do you grow zucchini in a confined area, which is my backyard, and in a, uh, in a desert climate. Um, and so trying to solve that problem is what I go through in that chapter, and it, it kind of explains step-by-step step what I did, how I broke it down, how I tried to solve it, what worked, what didn't work. So it didn't necessarily result in a patent application, but it did result in a process that ended up with a product that I could either, you know, try to get to market as a product by itself or maybe even try to protect with a patent application. Um, so it, it's, it's a fun process to go through, and prototyping really just means trying to implement something or trying to build it. And so how do you build that? And so Chapter 2 really goes through a simple example, building um, a way to grow zucchini in a confined space in the desert. Chapter 3 is titled The Innovation Foundation, Birthplace of Ideas. Chapter 4 is Inspirational Innovation and the Aha Moment. Now, let's talk about the Aha Moment. (laughs) Yeah, everybody's heard of the Aha Moment, and that is the moment in time where you've got that idea. You go, Aha, that's how I'd solve that problem. And so what I, I try mean, to usually do is, is it very clear when you have that? I mean, is it just like, wow, why didn't I think about this before? Yeah, usually um, it, it comes in, in a wave where all of a sudden you, you'll think of a solution. And then maybe right after that, it's not the final solution because you're like, oh, I've got some problems with that solution. It might work this way or it might work that way. And so you might go through a process of evolving that aha moment into a product that's actually going to be something you take to market or maybe you try to patent or what have you. But the aha moment is the, is the time, the moment in time where that light bulb goes on and you say, I got an idea. I, you know, here's what I could provide for this solution or here's what I could do to satisfy these customers. That's the aha moment. And it's something that you really believe is going to work. It's so clear to at least you. <laughs> that's right, exactly. And that's why you're saying, aha, because in your head, that light bulb has gone off and it's really shining bright. And so now the next question is, well, what do I do? I just had this aha moment. You know, you could relish in it, but uh, but that's not going to get you anywhere. So the next step is, is really understanding what you have to do to act on your ideas. Chapter 5, Go Team Go, Innovation Strategy for Teams. I guess that's working together uh, with others on an idea. And then you get into the patent application. My goodness, that sounds very, very detailed. Yeah, it does. The book does evolve into into the detail of the patent application. And the reason why I do that is because ultimately if you decide that you want to apply for a patent, you're going to need to review. Um, first of all, you'll need to work with someone that can help you write that patent, and typically that's a patent agent or a patent attorney. And as you go through that process, you're spending money. And so my the reason for having that detail in the book is to really help you save money so that you understand what it is they're trying to do when they're writing that patent application. So you may not have to worry about actually implementing all the details of the patent application, but you have to communicate what your idea is and why it is you know, something that's novel that no one else in the whole world has ever done and were brought to market. And so 
what I try to do with, with those chapters is really give uh, the reader the understanding of what they'll be reading when they read a patent application and what they need to really understand. In your Chapter 7, you talk about patent prosecution. Now, that's the real key, is to protect your idea, so you could end up in a lawsuit. That's right, and, and these are things that the average person really, you know, don't know, do not know. And, and the, what we try to do, what I try to do is, is remind everybody that, uh, you know, when you start talking about uh, legal matters, you definitely have to have a, a patent attorney or you have to have an attorney involved. And so I'm not an attorney, so I'm not giving legal advice, just an opinion. But what I try to do is explain the fact that the in order to actually get a patent, it's going to take a number of years, and that's called patent prosecution, where you actually interact with the United States uh, um, Patent and Trademark Office. And so you'll go back and forth, or your patent agent or attorney will go back and forth and interact with that office until you finally get allowed claims. <clears throat> and so that's the patent prosecution process, which is where things get really confusing, because sometimes people have spent thousands of dollars, and now all of a sudden they get to that end point, and maybe they haven't been able to get their patent, and they want to understand why, and then what the patent attorney or agent can do for them. Um, by the way, I am a patent agent, so I, I do understand that process with the USPTO. That's the acronym. And, uh, and so I try to share uh, what to expect through that process. Are there some very important do's and don'ts? Uh, yes. So, you know, one of, the, one of the main don'ts is you never want to go to somebody and say, you're infringing my idea. I'm going to sue you. That's one thing you do not want to do. Um, and so what I say is go see an attorney before you do that because you'll wind up in a world of hurt if you start to threaten or if you even start to talk about infringement because that is a legal matter and that requires a legal opinion. And so you'll need a, an attorney to help you. And, and so I try to prepare folks to make sure they understand what they should say, what they shouldn't say. Um, you know, in terms of trying to license your idea, I don't go into the marketing aspect, uh, but I do go all the way up to the marketing aspect of, of the invention. And so all the way through the process of, of how you get protection on your idea um, and then how to make sure that idea is something that uh, is, is novel, is, is very important. So I introduce a lot of terms, um, things that you'll need to understand and, and work through with your patent attorney and patent agent as you actually go through this process. Well, as you say, the book will hopefully inspire and motivate readers to take action, ask questions, determine which problems they want to solve, then solve the problem, and once the solution has been defined, determine if it is something worth patenting. So the, the patent is the protection of the inventor, and it's a very important part of the free enterprise system. That's right. It's a very important part, and it's, uh, it's one that actually has value, and it's one that uh, when you've applied for a patent, you can go and you can show it later on to someone that says, hey, I thought of that idea before you, and then you could prove when you came up with that idea and, and have a date of when you came up with that idea. That's the other thing a patent application does for you is it documents when you came up with that idea. Richard, tell us how to get your book. Uh, you can get the book online at uh, Amazon.com. Uh, it's discounted on Amazon.com or iUniverse.com. Um, and it'll be coming on to BarnesandNoble.com and, and just about everywhere else over time. It'll also be available as, a, uh, as an e-book um, in, the, in the near future. Well, Richard, we want to thank you for explaining the ins and outs of the patent process. And we certainly need to learn this because, as you say, if, if you're the type of person that likes to explore new territory, uh, you have to understand the process because you can save yourself a lot of heartache and probably a lot of money. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. And I'm very excited to start uh, talking to people that are acting on their ideas. Well, thank you, Richard. Thank you. That was Richard Edward Rowe. He is the author of his book, Changing the World, One Invention at a Time, Acting on Your Ideas Using the Creatively Inventing Framework.
You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriend at Principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com and then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, What to Say and How to Say It, 72 Courageous Conversations for the Workplace, Emotional Intelligence Skills, How-Tos for Entering, Engaging, and Exiting Necessary Dialogue. And the author's William and Carolyn Hines. And Carolyn joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Carolyn. Hello. Good to have you with us. Now, William's going to join us in a few minutes. But first of all, I'd like to just share what you have written about your book in a very general way. You say, what to say and how to say it is one of the most practical, easy-to-read, and easy-to-apply books that carries crucial conversations and emotional intelligence skills to an even higher level. Also, in your book, you quote from Earl Nightingale, and you say, he said that the effectiveness of one's life is determined by the effectiveness of one's communication skills. So, that kind of sums it up, and we can learn this, and thank goodness for that, right? That's right. You're exactly right. Well, give us a little bit of your background, you and William, your background, Carolyn, because you've been at this for some time. Well, we work together. We've been, we've been with each other, actually, for 50 years. We've been married for 43, and we live and, and work together, which many people find amazing. Uh, as well. Uh, my husband is uh, retired military, and we made a conscious decision some years ago to do exactly what we're doing and, and went about the process of planning for it. So, And, and we're quite happy with uh, how things have worked out. So you're consultants, business we're, consultants? That's right. We're, we're management training and consultants, and we do quite a bit of work in the area of Emotional intelligence, skill building, team building, leadership development, executive coaching, communication skills training, customer service training, those areas. Well, the big question always is, Carolyn, why did you take the time and the effort to publish this book? There's certainly a lot of books out there on communications. That's right. We had, for the last several years, received much intense urging from many clients, family members, and friends who really achieved uh, quite a bit of success from our coaching them in language to try for more uh, successful outcomes, particularly in relationships, and whether they were supervisors 
in our supervisory training programs or uh, employees and team building sessions, uh, folks would just uh, encourage us, well, to write that down, write down how you're coaching us to frame the language. And that's what we did. Well, you ask a lot of questions at, at the beginning, and some of these are, I think, well, probably all of them we've at one time or another have gone through. For example, have you ever thought of exactly what you wanted to say to someone the next day or even weeks later? Uh, I mean, yes, <laughs> you know, but, but maybe didn't know quite how to say it and maybe had a little bit of apprehension about it, you know? Or have you, have you ever been treated disrespectfully and did not know how to respond? And there's a long list of questions, and that's what this book is all about. That's right. It, what we provide, really, not just the questions, but also the responses to the questions, the answers to the questions. In other words, exactly what you can say, what needs to come out of your mouth in order to better manage these kinds of situations. So you start right out in Chapter 1, and, and here's 72 skills, and you call them skills, and that's hopeful. That means we can learn this. and it, you know We don't have to be uh, just be professional teachers. Or the, the average person can learn these things, correct? That's right. That's right. These, these skills are not at all tied to your DNA, just your willingness to, to, to learn the skills, spontaneously moving off of them given real situations that all of us encounter from time to time. Well, I'm going to pick out a few here, and if you would go into real details on just a few of them to give everyone an understanding of how uh, dramatic these are and how we can learn these, how important it is to learn these. For example, skill number one, we'll start with number one. Strengthen your emotional mindset by touching others with your words. Now, explain what you mean by all that. What we mean, and by the way, William has Oh, oh I want to welcome William Hines to this iUniverse segment. Uh, hello, William. Hello, how are you? Good to have you with us. William had to step out for a little bit, but we're glad he and Carolyn Hines are with us. So go ahead, Carolyn and William. Uh, we're talking about skill number one, William. Okay. All right. Strengthening your emotional mindset means that how you choose to think about what it is that you're facing, have to face, or, or faced in, in the past has a lot to do with the future of that relationship. So it's a discipline of thinking. It's an emotional mindset uh, and, and how you use the words to really come out of that mindset. A discipline of thinking. So you're going to help us think through the best way to respond or to initiate a conversation. That's right. That's right. Well, here's another one. Uh, William, why don't you share with us, uh, let's see, number six, skill number six. This is something we probably forget. Remember that people are rational from their point of view. Everything seems crystal clear, right, to the other person. Well, that, that's a powerful skill because what it does is it helps you frame your response before you make it. If you, we never say that you have to agree with where the person is, but you must, your mindset must be that that person is rational from their point of view. Now, I may look at their point of view and from the way I look at it, it may not be the best point for me. But if my mindset is they're rational from their point of view, then I am now better equipped to respond to that person to elicit the best response for the conversation. Is that like the old saying, we must walk a mile in somebody else's shoes in order to understand where they're coming from? Well, that's, that's certainly a, a good analogy, very similar to that. Frame your response. I like that. I like that. Frame it. You know, we, we, we always take... Very a lot of care usually if there's a special picture, we're going to frame it in a special way. So that takes some special thinking, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Let's see. I'm going down the list here. Just some things that uh, different skills that are just kind of jumping out at me. 
Oh, here's one. Skill number 16. Carolyn, uh, this one's right to the point. Stick to straight talk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, straight talk really means that, that you, you stay with what the issue is, especially without beating around the bush. Uh, and, and rather than trying to make up excuses or blame, just simply speak straight. Here's where I where here's where I am on this. For example, here's what I need to hear you say. I mean, those are examples of straight talk, as opposed to expecting other people to read our minds or wonder what it is that we're trying to say. And if I may jump in here, the more you talk around issues, the more cloudy the conversation gets. Why do we beat around the bush? We think we think you beat around the bush because you you lack the skill. Okay. It's the same reason why you hit a tennis ball out all the time. You don't have the skills that you need to keep it in balance. Okay. All right. Let's see. Uh, well, this one's very succinct and I think very understandable, but extremely important, William. Skill number 25, be truthful. That sounds like great advice. We sometimes probably have a challenge with, with that wisdom well uh and, and again that one is it's really sort of in line with with the straight talk and, and again you know when you're not being truthful all, oftentimes people can really see through it when you're not being truthful i know i've had great experience with that in my work with young people uh people think that you can kind of kid around with young young kids and they don't really know what it is you're saying but when you are truthful people know that you're truthful and oftentimes when you are not when you are less than truthful, people see through that. Then you've got to worry about remembering what it was you said. Well, in chapter six, it sounds it looks like a whole chapter, a very important chapter, Carolyn, picking your battles, that obviously is a, a very strategic of strategic importance. <laughs> and I and I like this one, which we probably often don't include into any kind of strategy with picking your battles, make a peace offering. That, that's right. That's right. We made a concrete peace offering. Being able to, to say to someone, I'm sorry or, or thank you, oftentimes is, is a minimum form of communicating, but we're talking about a concrete peace offering where I say, William, take this, take this role of lifesavers because you really saved my life on this one. And oftentimes people will keep that role of lifesavers or that card forever and a day because it has special meaning in connecting you to that relationship. It yeah. goes beyond the minimum expectation of a simple thank you or, or, or flat apology. It really but, becomes valuable to someone because they realize how much you care? That's right. All right. Here, let's see. How about... William, let's talk about uh, understand the management of differences. Okay. Understanding the management of differences, meaning basically you want to manage how effectively you're dealing with different people in different situations. So that obviously we have to really, again, I guess it's like you're saying these skills, we need to learn to have this disciplined kind of thinking, don't we? Yeah, because uh, as we as we say in that section, you know, some people may have stronger feelings around a particular issue than others, and and effectively managing those differences will have everything to do with how effectively the communication will be. And this one seems so obvious, but often it's so hard to do. Carolyn, listen, listen, listen. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We have a simple formula. We have two ears and one mouth, so spend twice the time listening as we do talking. Because we can't have just our own agenda, can we? Never, never, never. Then you're talking to yourself. <laughs> and, and sometimes we, yeah. we even answer ourselves and get into a real quagmire. Yeah, two, that, to one is the, two to one is the formula. It's certainly, if we're answering ourselves and not including the person that we're trying to communicate with, we're not getting anywhere. That's right. Here's another one. Uh, state what you are willing to do. Yes. 
uh, again, uh, another big one. And one of the best ways we think to, to really get communication really going is I go into that interaction and I say up front, here's what I'm willing to do to make this happen. Can I count on you to do thus and such? But I state up front what it is I'm willing to do. So I am, I'm in essence leading the conversation with what I'm willing to give or what I'm willing to do. And the key is to attempt and strive to be as clear as you can about what you're willing to do and what you need them to do. Absolutely. And see, if I lead with what I'm willing, what I'm willing to do, it, we think it makes it a lot easier for you to ask that other person then to say what it is they're willing to do to work through that. Right. Because that, I guess that just shows that we are trying to resolve the conflict as best as we can. That's right. It's not so much resolve the conflict as to manage it. We, we often work ah, with people yeah. unwilling to budge. Yeah, manage. I like that. Manage. Big, big change in, in perception there. That's right. That's right. Well, this book is, again, has 72 skills, skills that anybody can learn. We think anybody oh, can learn them, yes. But we need to practice them. We need to, obviously, we need to study. We need to, we need to practice, don't we? Yes. How do we practice? Well, the more, you know, I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to seem too, too coy about it, but it's almost like riding a bicycle. The more you use them, the more comfortable you are with them. I mean, we've done, and which was one of the reasons we wanted to do this little book, a lot of the people that we work with said, hey, I wish I could just take a little piece of you with me back to work when I have to deal with this. And what we say is the more comfortable you get using these skills, the easier it is for you to use them and the more natural it will feel. You see, oftentimes uh, conversations and communications break down because people are not comfortable that they have the skill. William and Carolyn, how do we get your book? Well, it's available through Amazon.com, uh, BarnesandNobles.com, the iUniverse uh, um, site as well. It, it's now available for, for purchase. Well, very good. We really appreciate you being with us. A lot to uh, uh, learn, but at the same time, a lot of hope that we can really get better in our communication skills, especially with your help. That's exactly right. Many people are very predictable, and that allows us to, to be able to practice what it is that we need to say, given the predictability of other people. William and Carolyn Hines, thank you. Thank you so much for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. Thank you. That was authors William and Carolyn Hines, their book, What to Say and How to Say It, 72 Courageous Conversations for the Workplace, Emotional Intelligence Skills, How-Tos for Entering, Engaging, and Exiting Necessary Dialogue. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.